when Bobby leads us in the song, Oh, to be like thee, I cannot help but think of my dad who led singing for many, many years, and that was a song that he led so regularly. It's one of the old songs we have sung all of our lives, but I can almost, uh, almost picture my dad uh, leading, that, uh, leading that song uh, as he led singing in the Lord's Church. And I don't know if Bobby read Philippians 2, 1 through 4 before he selected O to be like thee, but one would think that he did because uh, so much of what we will discuss tonight is summarized so beautifully in that, uh, in that hymn. Bobby has a way of picking just the right hymns, and I think he's done it again, intentionally or otherwise. He does it a lot of times intentionally, I know. But in Philippians 2, 1 through 4, we have a theme of unity that is based upon so many of the qualities about which we have just sung in this song, lowly in spirit and helpful to others. So many of the things that the Apostle Paul expresses here, uh, we have expressed in singing just now. Unity. Unity is indeed a precious, precious commodity. And certainly we need to view it in that light. Pursue it with every fiber of our being. We go back to an Old Testament psalm, Psalm 133. And that short psalm simply reads, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And tonight that is really the theme of these first four verses that we will be studying as we enter chapter 2 of our study of the Philippian epistle, as we have uh, called it and have others, as others have called it, the, the love letter of Paul to the church at Philippi, which he loved so much. But as we enter chapter 2, uh, the, uh, the heading for the chapter, as chapter 1 might have been designated Savior-centered living, and I believe I have those headings in my New Testament based upon uh, hearing by the late Brother Winfred Clark who was a, a master of alliteration and a great gospel preacher, had designated these chapters in that fashion. Savior-centered living in chapter 1, and in chapter 2, the self-emptying life. The self-emptying life. And this chapter is a poignant and powerful chapter on that theme, a theme that is absolutely crucial to the unity about which Paul writes here and for which he appeals in this second chapter of Philippians. Let's read the first four verses, and then we'll come back and look at each one separately. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. 
When we come back to verse 1 of this text, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, we find in, the, in this first verse motives for unity or the basis for the unity for which Paul is uh, appealing here to the church at Philippi and thus to Christians uh, for all time, obviously. The motives for unity are set forth in verse 1. In verses 2 through 4 of our text, we will see the attitudes and the actions that result in unity. But we have to have motive for whatever we do, and some motives are good, some are not, but we need to have obviously in terms of our service in the Lord's kingdom the proper motive. We need to be motivated properly. We need to achieve unity, certainly, but we need to be properly motivated to seek that unity and to maintain that unity. And in this first verse, we have different aspects or motives for that unity. He says, therefore, therefore, if... Now, we stop there, and we've mentioned this before in reference to the way the word if is used in, in the Greek language. It does not indicate something that is in doubt, as we often use if. If such and such happens, then I will do this. Uh, we use it with an expression of some doubt or the possibility that something may not be the case. He is not doubting that there is consolation in Christ here. He's not doubting that there is comfort of love or fellowship of the Spirit or affection and mercy. In the Greek, it is indica indicative of, uh, of uh, an, aff an affirmation, uh, something that is saying, in effect, since there is. In other words, the idea here is if there is and there is, and there is, and that's the, that's the meaning here. If there is, and there is uh, consolation in Christ, and there is comfort of love, there is fellowship in the Spirit, there is affection and mercy, and then he will go on to verse 2. But we're concentrating here in verse 1 on the motives for unity, the first of which is that there is consolation in Christ. Oh, and we could say that's an inspiration statement, but it perhaps maybe an understatement even by inspiration. Oh, how much consolation there is in Christ. Oh, how consoled we are by the knowledge and the assurance that we are in Christ Jesus. Because in Christ Jesus, as Paul elsewhere in this Philippian epistle tells us, we can rejoice regardless of, of external circumstances, regardless of persecution, regardless of trials. In Christ Jesus, there is consolation. There may be trials and difficulties and occasions for sorrow, and there will be. But in Christ Jesus, there is still that beautiful consolation that those external circumstances cannot change. Only we can change that consolation that we have in Christ. How? By leaving Christ. But as long as we are in Christ, we have that consolation in Christ. And that phrase, in Christ, is one that Paul used time and time again. And it is certainly not without the deepest possible meaning and the greatest possible assurance as we contemplate the consolation that we enjoy as a result of our being in Christ Jesus. And we understand, I trust, how it is that we came into that situation where we could be consoled in Christ. In Christ Jesus, obviously we have those blessings, we have that consolation, but to be in Christ Jesus, one must obey the gospel of Christ in order to come into Christ. 
For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, Paul wrote to the Galatians, have put on Christ. And so we have to put him on in order to be consoled in him, in order to be in him. And that process begins with a faith that leads us to repent, to confess, and then to be baptized for the remission of our sins. And then when we have done those things and the Lord himself has added us to his church, there is consolation in Christ. And Paul calls upon these Philippian brethren to think about that consolation as a motivation for the unity that he is appealing for here. A unity that is absolutely crucial to pleasing God, absolutely crucial to being able to influence the world around us because if the world around us sees disharmony, disunity, and bickering and biting and devouring, what kind of attraction will the church have to those in the world? None at all. Therefore, unity is absolutely of paramount importance. And Paul understood it. God understood it, obviously. And he appeals for that kind of unity here, motivated by a realization of the consolation we have in Christ. But the second motive he gives in this first verse is the comfort of love. If there's any consolation, and there is, in Christ, and if there's any comfort of love, and there is. Tell me that, tell me that you know anyone who does not gain comfort from the realization that he or she is loved. Is that not comforting? And by contrast, is it, is it not most distressing to think that no one loves you? Has anyone ever had that, come to that conclusion? Has anyone, has anyone ever expressed that? No one loves me. Well, on one occasion, David, in one of the Psalms, wrote, No one cares for my soul. He was pretty despondent at one point in his uh, life. He looked around him and said, no one cares for my soul. Because, but ultimately, David realized there was someone who cared for his soul. And there was someone who loved him supremely, whether anyone else did around him or not. And that was the God of heaven. And isn't it comforting to read the golden text of the Bible, John 3:16, and to hear those words that we've heard so often, for God so loved the world. That's all of us, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I can never, as a child of God, feel completely unloved no matter what happens to me in terms of my earthly relationships because the God of heaven will always love me and love me to the degree that he would sacrifice his only begotten son, the self-emptying life that Paul in this chapter of Philippians calls upon us to emulate. You see, a little bit later on at verse 5, beginning, which we'll get to the Lord willing next time, Paul is going to make his final appeal for unity. And what is the basis for that final appeal? The final appeal is based upon what Jesus Christ emptied himself of, which was equality with God, and came to this earth to die for you and for me. That's the final and ultimate appeal for unity that Paul will make. As if to say, if this is not enough, then think about this one. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, beginning at verse 5 of this chapter. And what did Jesus do? Gave up equality with God because of his love for us and because of God's love for us in order that we might have the consolation that comes from being in him and the comfort of love. But can any of us here tonight say that God is the only one who loves us? Oh, certainly not. And thankfully not. All of us can think of those of our families and those of the family of God 
who love us and who manifest that love for us in so many ways on so many occasions on a very regular basis and how thankful we are. And Paul simply calls our attention to it. The comfort of love. Let that motivate you. And then his third motivation is, if any fellowship of the Spirit. Now that's an interesting expression. Fellowship of the Spirit. He's talking about the Holy Spirit here. And the word fellowship, as we have often uh, studied it, is that word that simply means joint participation in something. And, of course, our joint participation is in Christ, in the church, as we are brothers and sisters, faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. We have fellowship with one another, and we have fellowship, most importantly, with the God of heaven and with Jesus Christ, his Son. That, incidentally, is what John reminds all of us of who are Christians, doesn't he? In 1 John chapter 1, the great chapter on fellowship, he talks about uh, these things we write to you that your joy may be uh, full. He talks about the fellowship, one verse earlier, that which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And then he adds, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Tell me, how is fellowship with God the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ, achieved? By fellowship of the Spirit. Fellowship of the Spirit. Because, you see, it is the Spirit, it is the teaching of the Spirit, by which we know how to have fellowship with God in Christ. There's no possibility of our having fellowship with God in Christ unless the Spirit has revealed to us how it is that we enter into fellowship with God in Christ and how it is that we maintain fellowship with God in Christ. He does that through His Word. And so when Paul uses the term fellowship of the Spirit, he's talking about fellowship in the teaching of the Spirit, a fellowship that we all have if we have rendered the same sweet obedience to the gospel of Christ and are continuing to live faithfully to that teaching, we are in the fellowship of the Spirit. That's interesting, isn't it? that in the world in which we find ourselves tonight, there's this preacher and that preacher and this teacher and that teacher all claiming to be guided by the Holy Spirit and in fellowship with God and teaching this doctrine and that doctrine and teaching that miracles have not ceased and claiming to be able to perform miracles, all of which they attribute to the supposed power of the Holy Spirit. And so what you have, what you have according to them is a Holy Spirit who is basically extending or giving fellowship to this person, though he teaches something totally different than this one, this one who teaches totally different from either one of them, all of them teaching different things, all claiming the, the Holy Spirit, and yet the fellowship of the Spirit is obtained in one way and one way only. Not by what I feel he is doing, but what I know he has done based upon his revelation through which and by which I enter into fellowship with God and Christ and the Holy Spirit. And so Paul simply reminds us, as is the case in many other passages, that the Spirit, when the Spirit is referred to many times, the teaching of the Spirit is under consideration, as in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, a passage we uh, looked at this morning. For by one Spirit you were all baptized into one body. Listen to that verse again, because it ties in beautifully with this phrase, fellowship of the Spirit. 
For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. Now listen to this last statement in the verse. And have all been made to drink into one spirit. Tell me the difference between the phrase drinking into one spirit and being in the fellowship of the spirit. There's absolutely no difference whatsoever. If we are drinking into one spirit, it means drinking into the teaching of one spirit by which and through which we have fellowship with that one spirit as well as with God the Father and God the Son along with God the Holy Spirit. Joint participation is achieved on one basis and one basis only. Not what I think about anything, but what God says about everything. And that is through his word and specifically, of course, the New Testament, his last will and testament. And oh, what a, what a beautiful unifying thought that is and what a comforting thought that is that I can have fellowship with God and Christ and with the Spirit and there's one way to do it and I know what that way is and I've got it right here in my hand and all I have to do, all I have to do is apply myself to learning and following this teaching and I have a relationship that far exceeds any other relationship that one could ever contemplate. A relationship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit as well as the relationship with all those who have entered into that same fellowship that I've entered into in the same way. My brothers and my sisters in Christ. And then he adds another motivation for unity. If any affection and mercy. Any affection and mercy. And obviously there is affection. There is affection and there is mercy. Oh, the tender mercies of God that have been extended to us. No doubt being expressed here by the word if, as we said, but since there is consolation in Christ, comfort of love, fellowship of the Spirit, affection and mercy, here are the four motivating factors that should cause them to do this. Verse 2, to fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. So now, having dealt with the motivations for the unity for which he's appealing, he now, he now gives us the attitudes and actions that will result in that unity for which he is appealing. It's going to take some attitude on our part and some action on our part in order to achieve that unity. We ought to be more than properly motivated to do it based upon what he's written in verse 1. Now let's do it. And as we do it, we fulfill his joy, he says, the Philippians, because he had so much love and concern for them. Nothing could make me happier, in other words, he's saying, than to hear that you have achieved this kind of unity and are maintaining this kind of unity. All of us rejoice, do we not, when a family member does something of which we can be extremely proud in the proper sense of the word that brings us great joy. I dare say that all of us at some time have experienced the joy that someone in our family has, has given us based upon what that person has done. But what about the family of God? Do we take for granted, do we take for granted the kind of joy that is produced when the family of God in any one given place is united and has the kind of unity for which Paul is appealing here? We should never take that for granted. We should always 
always rejoice that it is there and never, never let up in our efforts to keep it there and to truly rejoice that we are part of a group of people united. Fulfill my joy by being what? Like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord. Literally, that one accord phrase is being, being of one soul of one soul, of one mind. And the phrase of one mind indicates minding one thing. Look at how much emphasis there is on, on the mind here and being like-minded. Be like-minded, being of one mind, both phrases mentioned in the same verse. Think about one thing is the idea of that phrase one mind in the last two words of the verse. Think about one thing. Think about one thing. What is the one thing about which we should think? Well, the Christ, the church the, for which he died, and the blessings that flow as a result of being a part of that body. And as we are like-minded, having the same love, being, being uh, soul, uh, being bound by one soul or as one soul and thinking about one thing, being that unified, being that unified, then he further adds, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. How many congregations have been split because of people who manifest selfish ambition or conceit or who are more interested in positions of power, the diatrophies uh, complex? It has reared its head all too often in the Lord's church. And yet, Paul says, get rid of selfish ambition. This is the self-emptying life we're talking about here in chapter 2. Get rid of that selfish ambition, that conceit. But in lowliness of mind, and there is that quality that permeates the New Testament, beginning with the very first words, as it were, of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven lowliness of mind, humility of mind, as contrasted with pride. The scripture is filled with warnings against pride and admonitions to be poor in spirit or to manifest lowliness of mind. And notice this, let each esteem others better than himself. Can you think, as you look around you and think about your brothers and sisters in Christ, can you think of, of something that one or more of them is better at than you are or something that you can, can apply this to? Well, of course you can. Uh, we all have differing talents and differing abilities, but we should all have an appreciation for one another that recognizes that there is something about my brothers and sisters that I should recognize and esteem more highly than myself rather than being envious or jealous of something that a brother or sister may be able to do that I cannot do as well how should I feel about that rejoice rejoice over that and look at them and look at them in a way that manifests the kind of spirit that the Apostle Paul was talking about here I don't remember who it was but I remember one of the pioneer preachers uh, not restoration preachers, but preachers maybe, one of the preachers back in the 50s or 60s 
uh, very well known, and I hesitate to call a name because I may get it wrong, but he was a very, very eloquent preacher, as I recall hearing, and uh, very widely known. But his statement he made one time was, I wish that every one of my preaching brother, brethren could preach the gospel more effectively than I can. Now, on the surface, somebody might say, well, that's kind of an egotistical statement, perhaps. That says that I recognize that I can preach better than some of my brethren. If I say that I wish they could preach better than I can, then am I not saying I can preach better than some of my brethren? <laughs> well, that's not the way that this man intended it, obviously. Not as a conceited statement, but as a humble statement. I wish that I were the low man on the totem pole in terms of my ability to express myself, he was saying, and that every one of my preaching brethren could express himself far more effectively and far better than I can. Well, that recognizes that he had ability, but at the same time, it also expresses a desire that everyone else had more. What an attitude. I think it's commendable. And it's the kind of spirit that needs to be manifested in each of us. And finally, let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 5.8 that if if any man does not provide for his own, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel, worse than an unbeliever. That's how much emphasis is placed upon taking care of your own family and providing for your family. But that does not preclude looking out for the interests of others. And I know we live in a world where the attitude that is highly prevalent in today's world is, it's all about me and I'm going to take care of me, 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 me. Well, we do need to take care of ourselves. God expects us to. And if we don't take care of ourselves and those closest to us, then we're not doing what God would have us do. But not only for our own interest, he says here, but also for the interests of others. Now, does that mean that I need to poke my nose into your business every time I uh, perceive that maybe uh, there's something there that I need to address? <laughs> no, I need to be very, very delicate and very diplomatic in carrying out uh, this command. This does not give me a license to start nosing in everybody's business, my brothers and my sisters in Christ, and saying, I understand you're having uh, such and such a problem, and I'm here to help. <laughs> well, we do need to be delicate and diplomatic in our approach to that. But at the same time, we need to make ourselves available, truly make ourselves available, to help those who are in need. We're not to be busybodies, as the scripture says, in other men's matters. We're not to suffer as a result of being a busybody in other men's matters, as Peter writes, but if any man suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But we should be very much aware of what's going on around us in this congregation. Now, does that mean that we will always know everything that happens that presents a need? No, sometimes things aren't, aren't known. But when they are, we need to do what we can to help, at the same time being very careful not to be intrusive and not to be prying into matters about which we have no right to intercede. What a beautiful text this is. And the final appeal for unity, as we've already previewed, comes next, beginning in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The mind of Christ was a mind of obedience among 
so many other qualities, obviously. What about your mind? Is your mind tonight a mind of obedience? Are you, are you of a mind, as the expression goes, to, to obey the Lord if you have not done so in becoming his follower? To do so, you must act upon that thought by believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, fully and completely, a kind of belief that will move you forward to repent of your sins, to confess freely that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then to be buried in baptism for the remission of sins. And if you have done those things but have wandered away and know tonight that others know as well that you no longer manifest the mind of Christ and you need to come home in repentance so that once again you can have that mind in you which was also in him, we plead with you to come home tonight in repentance as we stand and sing to encourage you.